No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Donovan Bailey, he made a statement saying that Canada has racism with a smile. But we have people within the fabric of Canadian society that are maybe perhaps greater experts on racism than Donovan Bailey. So, for example, Stockwell Day, the former leader of the Canadian Alliance Party and Conservative MP, he said that, oh, yes, you have a few idiots that are racist hanging around Canada, but it's not systemic. You don't have systemic racism. It's not a systemic problem. And then he compared it to when he was younger and uh, he was bullied for wearing glasses and he was called four eyes. And uh, he was obviously victimized. He's still traumatized. Uh, I think as a community, we need to stand up and put a GoFundMe page together for him because he was not, uh, you know, he shouldn't have been blamed for having to wear glasses. You know, they, they didn't even uh, invent LASIK at that time when he was a kid. So what was he supposed to do but wear glasses? And he is so traumatized going through that. Actually, uh, they say that um, being called four eyes is the number 32 reason why uh, people have a bad day uh, in their lifetime. So uh, Stockwell Day, he says that we don't have systemic uh, racism. Uh, and uh, there is an article uh, that was uh, written by Rex Murphy in the National Post. So Rex Murphy, uh, 73 years young. Uh, wrote a very modern piece, unlike uh, what he's named after, uh, which is one of my favorite dinosaurs. He uh, wrote a very, very modern piece saying, how bad is racism in Canada? And he critiqued some of the statements by the Liberal government, uh, questioning whether or not there was, uh, you know, this prevailing racism or systemic racism. And he touted how uh, much of a welcoming society uh, this was, okay? And, uh, you know, maybe he uh, should have also uh, made a, a more significant point to let Indigenous people know that they should have been more grateful to their colonizers. Uh, he also denounced uh, in 2017 the removal of uh, Confederate monuments uh, because those were past heroes of the American experiment. And... After just less than two months after the massacre in Quebec City, uh, he said that maybe there may be something like Islamophobia that exists. Okay, and he's championed people like Israel Levant, and he's previous previously dismissed white supremacy as uh, something from the progressive fantasy factory. So. Uh, Rex Murphy, uh, another uh, expert who's lived the reality of racism, uh, asks us a very important question that we should think about, you know, if we're critically thinking, how bad is racism really in Canada? And then you have a statement by Francois Legault, the premier of Quebec, and he says he denies there is no such thing as systemic uh, racism. There's not systemic racism. You have a small number of Quebecers who are racist. 
but there is no institutionalized racism, right, in, in Quebec whatsoever. Of course not. Of course there is an institutionalized racism, even though uh, there was that massacre in 2017, right, the in Quebec City, the largest, uh, most nefarious massacre uh, in, on Canadian soil in a place of worship uh, occurred in Quebec, the province of Quebec. And they felt so bad about that massacre and, and that amount that amount of islamophobia and the effect that it had on the muslim community they actually put policy in place to protect any muslim woman from being killed on any government institution with their uh bill uh 21 to uh prohibit the display of religious symbols which overwhelmingly targets Muslim women, they ensured that there would be no Muslim women uh, that would be harmed in any type of uh, public institution. So, of course, he's doing so much. And if we see some of the history of bills that Quebec has introduced, uh, you know, Bill 94, uh, you know, the Quebec Charter of Values, Bill 64, they have been uh, ensuring that something like Islamophobia does not prevail systemically uh, in their society. And what I find uh, interesting is that they always refer to legislation. Listen, there's bills out there, there's laws, there is, and, and it's supposed to treat everybody fairly, and it's supposed to treat everyone equally. We don't have racism. Where is it that says that black people are treated differently? Where does it say that uh, you know Muslims are supposed to be treated differently? Where does it say that indigenous people are supposed to be treated differently? We don't have racism anymore. You know, and the, many times you're able to hide behind these laws and bills and you give these laws some really nice names or these acts like that, uh, that uh, during the uh, election where they tried to in include that anti-barbarism act. So bar bar Barbaric Cultural Practices Act, Barbaric Cultural Practices Act. So, uh, of course, we're not targeting minorities or immigrants. We're just trying to stop barbaric cultural practices and they hide behind these really nice sounding names and bills and say it's fairness but we know that laws and policies and bills are practiced differentially and they affect people differentially it's like for example we introduce a bill called the anti-cranial skin cancer bill what that's how can you be for skin cancer Anti-cranials, but all it does, okay, is that you may, you have to make sure we're against skin cancer, so you have to make sure that no skin on the top of your head is exposed. So if you go into a government building, the only way we're going to give you any type of services is if the skin on your uh, top of your head is not exposed. And guess what? We find out later. Hey, this really only affects bald people. This bill, even though it sounds really nice. And beautiful, are you for skin cancer? No, no, no I'm not for skin cancer. Uh, or you can't be pro skin cancer. Skin cancer is so bad. So you have somebody uh, who's walking to a building and he says, you know, I need I need to go get some government services. No, you can't come into the building. You know, you, you have skin that's exposed on the top of your head. Haven't you heard of the anti-skin uh, cancer bill that was introduced? Cranial skin cancer bill? It's like, that doesn't make any sense. How does... How does me covering my head 
going to give you skin cancer. He's like, listen, man, I don't know how a woman wearing hijab infringes on people's freedoms, but it's the law and I'm just here to enforce it. I'm not here to think. I'm just here to follow it. And that is the type of attitude and that is the type of posturing that occurs. And that's the type of game that is often played. And so when you try to talk about systemic racism, people have a very short memory. Sometimes they get amnesia. What do you mean? What about uh, the residential schools? What about the 60s scoop? What about uh, you know the, the fact that we do have a history of slavery in Canada and that the first parliament that existed in Canada, many of those uh, members of parliament owned slaves. What about Hogan's Alley where they displaced black community in Vancouver? What about in Atlantic provinces where they took away the land and they usurped the land of uh, black uh, landowners? So the indigenous po uh, population has, uh, if you look at the stats system uh, systemically, if you look at Muslims, especially in recent years, if we look at the media as an institution, that's a systemic problem. Like we have Sheikh Yafa with us here today on the podcast. And only weeks ago, we were speaking about the Halifax massacre. Imagine if it was a Muslim who did that, who committed that crime. It would be on the 24-hour news cycle worldwide. Worldwide, it would be continuous. Fox News would open a headquarters in Halifax. They would open a, a headquarters there and you would have it broadcast and we would still be uh, you know, reminded of it over and over and over again. If we look at the statistics of hate crimes, that doesn't occur in a vacuum. There is a system in place that is proliferating hate crimes against Muslims. Uh, that is looking at indigenous people in a certain light, that looks at black people in a certain light. You look at the statistics of how black people are arrested and stopped and frisked more frequently. How indigenous people, you know what I found amazing? Is that 50%, over 50% of indigenous, uh, of, of uh, prison population of women, okay? 50% of them in solitary isolation are indigenous women. That's a system. You're telling me there's no systemic issue. There's no system in place that is prevailing. But as Donovan Bailey said, it's like racism with a smile. It's a racism. We do have better manners here in Canada. And that's not to reject Canadian society. But to be a strong and resilient society, to be a self-confident society, we need to be able to look ourselves in the mirror and point out our faults. And just by denying and saying, I don't think it exists. You know, we have RCMP heads, uh, deputy commissioner of the RCMP saying it doesn't exist. You know, there uh, there's a uh, Muslim brother I know who is in law enforcement. And he said that there is an overwhelming negative attitude amongst most officers against Muslims. There's an overwhelming negative attitude against indigenous people. And then, of course, there's an overwhelming attitude uh, against uh, black people. So. The problem ends up being is that you have a narrow definition of what you consider to be racism. So we see somebody being called the N-word and being killed on a short video clip that can be contextualized within a few minutes. That is clear racism and you cannot come up with any type of alternative explanation. Oh, was there something in his hand? Oh, no, there wasn't something in his hand. Oh, just in case, just in case. 
that that could have been the reason why the officer did it. If if it's absolutely if you know it's so clear, there's no room for doubt, and it's contextualized within a few minutes. Because remember, our attention spans are very short. We lose attention very very quickly. It can be contextualized very very quickly. Then okay, that's that's racism. But anything that requires explanation and anything that's hidden, anything that prevails within society or legislation that's written to target a certain group, that's not considered racism. And Malcolm X has a very beautiful quote where he says, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. And today I have with us two uh, very dear friends of the program of the podcast. Uh, we've had them on before and we are here to benefit also uh, from their wisdom and their insight because they have a real life lived experience of uh, being aware of the issue of racism, uh, understanding the fabric of Canadian society because we want to focus on the Canadian uh, dynamic, the Canadian paradigm. We're not going to talk about what's happening in the United States. They do have an issue that they're dealing with, especially targeting African-Americans, especially targeting the black people. But we're going to talk about the Canadian paradigm and we're going to talk about their lived experiences. And it won't be as flaky as, uh, you know, feeling that I have been traumatized for being called uh, four eyes. So with us on the podcast tonight, we have Dr. Abdullah Hakim Quick. And Sheikh Mohammed Yafa, I would like to welcome my two dear beloved Shaykh on the program today. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. <clears throat> so I want to get right into it. I want to get right into it. Uh, do we have, uh, let's start with uh, Dr. Uh, Quick. Do we have systemic does it exist is rex murphy right is the man who's named after my favorite dinosaur correct is do we not have really that racism isn't that bad and there's a lot of statements now from politicians and so forth and it seemed to be a specific demographic as well you know i don't know if we care to note that but does systemic racism exist in canada what are your thoughts Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah again. Um, this is a very interesting topic, um, one which needs to be dealt with uh, in a very straightforward, clear way. And as a historian, um, I tend to step back a little bit uh, to, to get some perspective because, you know, we won't fully understand what's happening on the ground today unless we understand something about the past. And um, when you look at the history of Canada itself, Canada is not like the United States. The United States uh, was a colony of, uh, of, of England and uh, they broke away. They had a revolution and, and, and they broke away and, and they based their economy for, for the most part in the beginning on slavery. And so the very setup within their constitution, they said the African slave is three fifths of a man. And that struggle went on right from the beginning. But we have to remember that Canada uh, was and still is to a certain extent part of the Commonwealth. Uh, it was a British colony and the British had defeated the French. So all, you know, all throughout the British territories, slavery existed. 
I mean, Liverpool and, and the major cities in, in, in Britain were built uh, over the backs of African slaves. And what you'll find in the British colonies is based upon their, their, their means of production, you'll see a different relationship. So you see in a place like Australia, for instance, you know, they slaughtered the Aborigines. There's no talk about it. They just slaughter and they just throw you in a reservation. But you'll see some of the other colonies, like in Canada, um, they didn't have large plantations uh, like in the United States. So there was no need for, for thousands, hundreds and thousands of millions of Africans to work. However, they did inherit uh, the system of the class system and the race system where Africans were brought in mainly as domestic slaves. So you have domestic uh, slavery. Then you have certain farms too, where, where the farms were growing. They're not as extensive as the United States, but you did have a farming system where Africans you know, were also used there. So within Canadian society, right from the beginning, uh, black people were right on the bottom. I'm not even talking about the First Nation indigenous people. They were out of the picture. They were considered to be the enemy, the other, and pushed off into reservations. Uh, and treaties were made which had never been fulfilled up until today. Uh, that's another story in itself. But that's racism too, right? So if we talk about mm. racism, you got to bring up the indigenous thing. But anti-black racism existed right from the beginning. But because for the most part, what we see or what we understand is a domestic type of slavery, where you have your domestic slave in your house and she's wearing decent clothes and, you know, whatever. It's different than the ball and chain cotton plantation or, or sugarcane uh, plantation. And so it existed. And, and right up into the 20th century, black people held these low positions. We can go further into it uh, as we go along. But, you know, there's another statement which is interesting to talk about Canadian racism. Um, my wife's father, uh, my wife is originally from Jamaica, and, and she came here at 15 years old. And when her father came from Jamaica, he's a very wise person. And he said that, you know, racism in the United States is rotten and it stinks, it smells. But racism in Canada is rotten, but it has no smell. Mm. So that's the same wisdom. It is rotten. It is institutionalized. But because you can't smell it, you don't realize it until your head hits a glass ceiling when you're going up and there's a, there's a, there's a ceiling made of glass. You can see through it, but you're going nowhere. Thank you. Uh, Sheikh Yafa, what are your thoughts? Does systemic racism exist in Canada? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I think the two of you have given a, a beautiful framework of uh, exactly what exists. And I, I like the, um, the analogies um, that you gave, Dr. Sayed, of um, uh, the speeches that we're hearing from uh, uh, people who are uh, comparing uh, things that are I wouldn't say trivial because, you know, there could be a kid in the school who has been picked on to compare that to racism, which actually means the belief that mm. one particular segment of society, one kind of race is better than the other. As if those kids were believing for ex Murphy that, you know, 
because you have those eyes. Your race is lower than my race, so that comparison yeah. is is a like. I'll, is, I'll give you. I'll for example, Sheikh, Sheikh, like, yeah. and 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 I would also like both of you to touch on personal examples to show yeah. the reality, because yeah. sometimes that hits people. Uh, I think more well, deeply. No, yeah, you know, when yeah, you talk I'm, about the personal experience, like, for example, myself growing up, my skin color was called out by fellow classmates, by teachers, okay, by people I worked with, okay? And then as I got older, because of all the different global wars that were occurring and Islamophobia became, uh, you know, more prevalent in the minds of people, then I was... Uh, I've had uh, very, uh, you know, hard experiences. You know, it's it's, it's not uh, something that I had an easy time with uh, in terms of dealing with the Islamophobia, talking about my uh, my religion, uh, talking about my identity. So things that are very very close and innate to me, right? So I was called that from a young age. Actually, I, I grew up in a in a smaller town, and I was because they were so ignorant. And I want you to think about this. They didn't even call me the right racial epithet. Uh, some of them would call me the N-word because there was no other black people. I was like the darkest skin. And I'm like, okay, if you're going to be ignorant, at least be an educated ignorant, you know. But, uh, Sheikh, like, go ahead, continue. Like, But I just wanted to, I just want to validate um, uh, what you said and also what Dr. Um, Dr. Quick said. Because actually there, there are documents that have come out that we have seen in Nova Scotia mm -hmm. that people, black people, we are sold in the markets here in Canada. So it is no more like they came in as domestic slaves. They were sold. Actually, the, the auction would be announced ahead of time in the newspapers. This Friday, there is going to be this and this. You know, my merchandise is coming. There's this person, the, the you know, the, this woman, she looks like, the, like this and so on and so forth. And describing them the way you will describe a bicycle when you're selling it on Kijiji, right? Mm. So um, it, it existed here, real slavery and selling. For, of people for money. And uh, if you come to Nova Scotia, and I, I know you came here, you met some of my friends, Dr. Quick, uh, Brother Will, and, and, and um, anyway, so if you if you come here, there are the, 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 what you mentioned also was the black people who were brought in here when they joined the war and the British promised them that if we win, you'll come down, we'll give you a place to live and we'll give you land and we'll give you 100 acres. Every white person got their promises fulfilled and the black people were given 10 acres and in the places that were rocky where nothing grew. And those communities are still established. And the communities that were closer to the city that were not that far, they used them as dumps. So up till the 1960s, those places were, were dumps. And when they wanted that place, they went again and uprooted them, built bridges and moved them into concentration places where they still live, which is the, the black neighborhoods. So um, it does exist. My first experience with racism in this country was a social experience because I, I started going to the Staples, which was closer to the neighborhood where I, where I lived, which is the black neighborhood. I found that, and up till today, I was at Staples today. That Staples is the only Staples in Nova Scotia that I have seen that has a security guard. Up till today, I was at another mm -hmm. Staples that doesn't have. And just a couple of weeks ago, I was at that Staples. If it's not in the past three weeks, that mm -hmm. security guard is still there. And I've been here for about 20 years. The only Staples wow. in town. And it's just by I've never seen. I've never seen a Staples with a security guard. This, the, well, that's, that's, <laughs> this is a coincidence. They just happened to be unlucky. It happened to be in the black neighborhood. 
right? Yeah. And just last year in 20, 2019, um, some of our brothers here uh, did from, from Dallas University and the black community did, did the research and they found that black people were six times more likely to be stopped by the police than white people to be stopped and freaked or questioned or asked, right? So, so the, a moratorium was put on uh, street street checks because of that. And um, the the personal examples um, are, are varied. There, there are so many. Um, I remember uh, one time I called the police. I, I had an incident with somebody, some a group of white folks. Uh, it was about a car in their in in, in their uh, parking lot and um, with a friend of mine who lived there. And I said, you know, let's call the police. So we called the police and the police came. The police came and did not say one word to me. They talked to the other folks and they told me everything was all right. I said, I just called you. <laughs> Something happened to yeah. me. You didn't even ask me what happened and how did every, and when they, when they had the conversation with those folks, the white folks, they didn't even, they, they talked with them in the corner, right? Mm. Two policemen that happened um, uh, that were there and and subhanallah another time i was driving in a neighborhood looking for an address and uh, this is a place that has uh, um, uh, garages car, uh, car, car car dealerships it's not a neighborhood where people where many people lived but somebody called the police on me and guess who came the same police guy one of the two mm -hmm. policemen that 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 were in that incident and came to me and stopped me while i was leaving and uh, and asked me do you know why why i stopped you i said i have no idea mm -hmm. and after taking my documents he came to me and said somebody called us and said you are driving slowly in the neighborhood i said i was looking for an address you i don't got, think you I got could. stopped for driving too slow <laughs> driving too slow right yeah because i think i should be speeding <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, while looking for an address, and yeah. so driving too slow in Halifax, uh, yeah. that was um, that was really telling. And the stories in the in the workplace at Tim Hortons at the at the Canadian Tire and the bank, uh, they just keep repeating themselves. So, uh, systemic racism is is everywhere. If you look at the the school curriculum curricula, for example, um, the history is that is taught is all taught. It's white history that start. And even when Aboriginal or Black history or other people's history are, are taught, it is taught from the from the perspective of the white person as well. So they don't even hear our voices. So and that is right into the system, right? Mm -hmm. So decision making processes and so on. So for to say systemic racism does not exist, it's like closing your eyes and working on the highway. Mm. You know. So yeah. What would you say? Uh, I have a question for you, Sheikh. What would you say when you're quoting that statistic that you know black people are six times more likely to be stopped there is an argument that is made by certain types of people who say well uh they're just stopping anyone who's committing a crime so these people must be committing more crimes what would your response be to that well first of all it wasn't about crime it's just being stopped mm. and and frisked and charged and and and, and checked so so it's not whether it's, this is not people who go to court this is just police stopping people on the road and checking them, right? Mm. So it ha that that argument bears no merit, whatsoever. Secondly, if their if their argument was like so, for example, say for is disproportionately you have First Nations. Um, so uh, let me pose this to um, 
you know, Dr. Quick. So First Nations, compared to their uh, representation in the population, they're far more uh, incar rate of incarceration than uh, as compared to uh, their total population. Mm -hmm. So what would, what, how would you respond to say, oh, maybe they're just uh, more prone to criminality? So what would your response be to that? So that's, that, is, that is a true statistic. They are, they're more uh, First Nations. We look at it, obviously, we're looking at it as a uh, point of systemic racism, but then perhaps a counter argument may be that, oh, it's just because they're more prone to criminality and so they're deserving of those incarceration rates. What would your response be to that, Dr. Quick? Right, right. Similarly to the, to the fact that they would say like the rate of alcoholism, you know, mm. drug addiction is higher. But, you know, what I say again, you got to you got to look back, you know, what is the reason why they are alcoholics? Well, mm. What is the history behind it? And, and the fact is, you know, that the settler, settler population here, because remember, Canada was originally just upper and lower Canada. You can only go back 150 years. It was just a small little territory. Most of this country was, you know, controlled by the First Nations people. And so they had to literally push the people out of their lands and then, and then make, make so-called treaties with them, take over the land. And then in order to certify this, they, they set up the, the residential schools where there's a type of brainwashing going on and a type of even, you know, torture and, you know, and the diet changed and, you know, because they wanted to have an, a good Indian. You know, they, they mm. want to have Indian and it, like they say, take the Indian out of the Indian. You know, mm. so you just have a shell, right? Looks looks like a so-called native or a so-called Indian, but, but you mm. don't have the history, you don't have the culture, you know, you, you don't have the relationship with the land. And so therefore, yes, alcoholism is there. That is because alcohol was used as a form of subjugation. It, it mm. was was freely put. And I want to give you an example. A Muslim community opened up in uh, Inuvik, uh, which is the Northwest Territories. And I went there uh, a couple of years ago to, to do dawah, you know, to do outreach and to, and to meet the people and to train the Muslims there how to reach out to the community. And we looked at the situation there and so we were thinking, how can we give back to the native community, the Gwich'in, Inuvaliut, what we call on the eastern side, Inuit? How can we give back to the native community? And so we thought, okay, maybe we can set up a, a, an alcoholic anonymous, like a detox center, because the, 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 the addiction to alcohol is widespread in the community, okay? When we looked at it, we found that alcohol in the Northwest Territories was cheaper. It was less cost to buy alcohol than it was if you go south to Alberta in, in, into mm. the you know, regular lands of the Canadians. And there was no detox center in the whole of the city. In the mm. whole region, there's no. So therefore, it's it's easier to get alcohol, mm. which is addictive, and there's no organized way to, to, to come out of your addiction. So that mm. is a, a systemic way of, of, of keeping the people down. So mm. when the person's an alcoholic, when they have no chance for education, when they have no chance uh, for upward mobility in life, they will turn to crime. And so therefore, you know, when they turn to crime, they say, you see, these people are criminals. But when you go back to the essence of, of the system itself, you know, we understand that. The same way with, with black people. 
when my wife's family came up, my wife's mother came in the 50s from Jamaica. And at that time, there was a wave of uh, Caribbean, West Indian, uh, black people coming up, you know, into Canada. And uh, well, this is different than Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia gives you, you know, the real, you know, uh, history hundreds of years ago. But in Ontario, you see another form of it. And, and, and that is that, you know, the main jobs that black people, you know, were, were allowed to get, it was usually domestic servants. You work in people's houses and you work in the restaurants. And for the men, they were usually uh, porters on trains. So, you know, you have mm. the system, right? So you have mm. the red cap. So mm. red cap was one of the highest jobs that a black man could have. And they mm. served the trains all over the countries as red cap, which is basically a servant again. So, mm. so it was the system you, you almost never would see a black person in any political position, or you would mm. see a black person, for instance, on television, you know, only too recently, uh, you would start to see, you know, a person of color on television, even in sports, because basketball was invented by uh, A. Smith here in Canada and then taken mm. to America. Here in Canada and in the U.S., there were no black people on the basketball court. Uh, mm. Baseball was also white, and it and mm. was, you know, only till recently, uh, a few decades ago, that black people even entered into these sports. So, so, so the system itself was set up that the people of color would have limited opportunities and it was mm. usually in a service position or entertainment. Yes, mm. you have black singers, you have black dancers, entertainers, mm. comedians, right? Because this is how the, the slave system is set up and, mm. and, and it will use you to entertain, they will use you to serve. And mm. it wasn't until the 60s here in Ontario, because I can mainly speak about Ontario, uh, although I've been to other places. The 60s was a rebellion that, that was going on in the uh, United States and in the Caribbean, and it also came here. And, you mm. know, it came up here in the late 60s, 70s, you know, in the time of this rebellion. Mm. And we we literally demonstrated, you know, we struggled, uh, we went to boards of education, we went to the government, you know, in order to get the rights to be represented, and, and also to have higher levels of, of employment, education. We had to literally fight for these things because mm -hmm. this was set up in such a way that you, 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 you can forget about it. You know, one interesting story. My wife was telling me, because we were talking about volunteerism, you know, what is the benefits of being a volunteer? And she said, mm -hmm. you know, when I was, uh, you know, coming into my teens and 20s, you know, the main thing I did was volunteer. And she said, now that I look back at it, the reason was because whenever you got a job in a restaurant or a store, they always put you in the back. Mm. You can't be in the front of the store. You cannot represent them because mm. the natural racism that's outside, you know, a black person could not represent this restaurant, could not represent this, this educational institution. And so therefore, um, she said, I'm not working in the back. So, so she, she worked as a volunteer in different organizations, got her education, you know, because of this systemic racism that is there. I'll give you another example. This is in the 90s. I had succeeded, alhamdulillah, I got a, a, a master's in African history. Um, this is my passion, you know, and then just by the mercy of Allah, 
uh, because I, I, I knew Arabic and I was into West African uh, Islamic history, um, I was taken into the PhD program in the University of Toronto. And I had friends in Nigeria and I traveled all throughout the land of the Hausa. And, um, you know, I, I had I could go to the documents. And so I, I went to a very high level. You know what happened to me? Mm. I went through the system. I received a Ph.D. Mm. In, in, in the history department of University of Toronto. Mm. And I went into the office to give them my thesis because they take your thesis and they put it in a special uh, place, you know, where all the theses of the, their graduates, you know, sit. It's an honor. And mm. the secretary was there and I came in. You know, as a clearly African American and Muslim, I I'm, I dress like a Muslim, even if I'm mm. in university, right? So I mm. came there and gave. She said, "You got the PhD?" <laughs> and I said, "Yes." And she said, "Oh my God, you came through the floorboards." <laughs> what she said, she wow. couldn't pull us up. She said, "You came through the floorboards." Yeah, yeah. And, and she said, "Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I didn't mean that." You know what she's saying? Yeah. Yeah. You're not supposed to come through the front door. Yeah. A person yeah. of African descent, a Muslim too? No, man, yeah. you don't come you don't be a, a PhD in history of U of T in the front door. You mm. snuck under the ground through mm. the floorboards, trick your way through, and got your PhD. Mm. That is systemic racism. Yes. That shows and that, that shows, and up until now, and you can go to the statistics. There's some startling statistics coming out of University of Toronto and other universities from the medical schools. And I believe mm. University of Toronto, they said of the graduating class uh, in the last few years, only one black person per year mm. graduates as a doctor. Mm. This is systemic. And you can say, well, no, mm. you people. No, because mm. you don't get scholarships or mm. it costs so much money and, and, and your family does menial jobs. It's, 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 it's a type of economic racism. You know, how, how you are just, you know, by the system, you are put into a lower position. And and, mm. and this is what Afro-Americans are saying when they say, I can't breathe. Because mm. breathing is not just physical. It's economic. It's psychological. Mm. It's political. It's all of these aspects. And that same lack of breath is what we are feeling here in Canada. Mm. The guy who got his knee on your neck. He's smiling and, you know, he's a really nice Canuck, you know, but mm. he's his knee in your neck. Mm. No, and, and I agree with you. I think uh, there's two important points that we should pause to reflect upon. Number one is that the holders of powers in these institutions, so the power brokers, uh, the people who hold these reins of power, their bias has a significant effect on outcomes, whether or not you sh on the surface, it looks like all the rules are the same for everyone. Uh, my, I, I knew a brother who worked um, in airport security. Now, airport security is supposed to be random checks. It's supposed to be fair and equal for everyone. He said overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the demographic of person uh, who was randomly searched or extensively searched or held aside for questioning was black and Muslim. Mm -hmm. That he said they had it the worst. Next was any uh, any Muslim. So any Muslim that they could identify as being Muslim, uh, they would always, it, there's always, there's no such thing as a random check. He said, I observed this 
for my entire time working at airport security. And so on the outset, it's supposed to be fair. So similarly, if you have two people committing crimes or being suspicious of committing crimes, one, you're, maybe you target the other person, you may let go or you're easy with them. There can be a real differential way on how you apply the law or how you look at that individual. And it makes it such an important, like they've done studies where they've shown that a teacher's view of a student, that's why they say there's such bias, it's like self-fulfilling property uh, prophecy. A teacher's view of a student has one of the biggest determinants of the outcome of how that student performs. They say this student is a smart student. And that's uh, they, they've done these studies where they say, okay, I want you to, at the beginning, the first day, you don't know anything about these uh, stu uh, students. Just rate how much, uh, how likely you think they are to succeed, how likely they are to perform very, very well. And they'll say, okay, this is a smart student, this is a dumb student, this is an average student. It, it'll be almost identical, the results that occurred. So it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy. I've identified these are the people that are smart. These are the people who are intelligent. These are the people who are good students that are uh, playing by the rules and they, they're they they're doing things that I feel that are culturally appropriate and so forth. Like there's been a lot of uh, studies that have shown that it, it makes a difference. Like if you try to impose what you feel as being, say, a uh, – they say uh, a – a, a, a white woman's perspective, what is good behavior? That might not be the same for a young boy. You know, that the boys might be like, uh, you know, they say they learn better through activities and, and things like that. So now this boy who has a lot of energy, he might not be a bad kid, but oh, he's, he's not an intelligent kid. He doesn't have focus. He doesn't, you know, do a lot of these different things. Sheikh Yafa, I want to get you into this. Uh, this systemic racism that we see on the education level and i know you're involved as well in terms of uh trying to educate and you know in in the area of uh, counseling and conflict management and all, all sorts of things do you see uh this perspective being shaped like this type of perspective like we are conditioned culturally to have certain outcomes for groups of people uh what would you say Sheikh Yafa? well um uh, definitely i think you you explained it um very well um, the, the black kids in school, they get praises when they show good dance moves, for example, and when they throw the basketball and it lands right into the hoop and they score, right? And uh, they are never uh, told you are a good uh, mathematician. Uh, so the stereotype starts right uh, from, the, from the beginning in the school. And kids, the one that they trust the, the most is their teachers. Kids can even come home. I remember coming home and arguing with my father because I trusted my teachers. I thought they were the ones that were experts in that field. So the teachers, whatever they tell the children in the school, the children tend to believe that. And that in itself, when it is um, when it is compounded with the children seeing where they are represented in society, right? Uh, is it in, in cleaning, for example, or is it in... In, in working in frontline and, and 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 serving people in the stores, that also impacts them. Those those things compound themselves and marginalize these children and doesn't give them the opportunity to go forward. Um, so it, it's definitely is is the case. And if we want to fight this, we start from K, from kindergarten, from K all the way to university. Now in the universities. 
um, uh, for example, in, in Dalhousie University, up till uh, just a couple of years ago, in Dalhousie University's uh, 200 years of history, they had not graduated more than three African Nova Scotians from the School of Medicine who had graduated and worked here in over 200 plus years, mm -hmm. right? And actually, that was not by coincidence. One reason why they couldn't do that was that for somebody to be in this in, in the School of Medicine, you had to have a relative that had been in medicine. So mm. for you to actually come to come to Halifax, you have to have come to Halifax first when you first when we are when you were born. So pretty much I'm saying you can never come to Halifax. So and then they say it's not it is not uh, systemic. So it so the, the the medicine became a white profession. Nursing became a white profession. Every profession that has some kind of uh, prestige or money or uh, bring income, it became a, a a white profession. So they limit the opportunity. So that is how it is really very systemic. And the system is struggling now even to make changes. Because me, I, I worked in the, in the health system for, for, for close to 11 years as a consultant for diversity and inclusion, working mainly for First Nations people, African Nova Scotians, people with disabilities and new immigrants. And the, the, the changing the system, as soon as you start talking, some people will come with this ridiculous idea of, of reverse racism, right? Mm. So they will say reverse racism. And what they mean by that is the, the, uh, the, the rules are not fair. So you cannot, put, um, you cannot put practices and policies in place that will allow some other people also to gain equal opportunities. So they see that as reverse racism. But my argument was racism means I see myself as better than you. Do these people mm -hmm. actually see themselves as better than you? And in the Canadian Human Rights Human Rights Act, it says that to introduce or to whatever the wording is, but to put in place uh, practices or system or policies that will reverse historic discrimination mm. is not a discrimination in itself. Mm. We can't start the race while your feet are in the mud and you have mm. to travel five kilometers by, on the mud and I'm on, I'm on the playing field and we are running and I do five laps and I come and when it is time to say, listen, you got to slow down. I say, no, well, it's the same rule. It is not the mm. same rule. It started, mm. we started on the wrong footing. We started mm. on, on equal footing. So we have to actually reverse that because mm. what happens if we don't is this thing, this racism, this discrimination, it doesn't only hurt, it doesn't only cause anger, it actually makes the body mutate. It causes it causes changes in the body. Um, there was a documentary that was recorded in the United States, and this is this is uh, really telling. They found that women who migrate from Africa to the United States and give birth to children, their children, their birth weight and their health is as good as any white woman's child or any healthy child. Um, but the women who were born in the United States that have gone through centuries of uh, and generations of, of discrimination, they generally their babies are lighter and less healthier. And they, the only variable they could find is 
these women that came from Africa, which is supposed to be uh, stereotypically poor and have nothing, the only variable is they never went through the extensive and lifelong discrimination mm -hmm. that the ones that were born in the United States went through, right? Mm -hmm. So something has happened to the body of these people, these women, these poor women who grew through racism, fighting it, this microaggression every day, you know, wondering what somebody is going to say about you. But it's, it's even telling than that, that the children of these African women, the continental African women, their children, having gone through racism from childhood, they, when they give birth to children, their children have the same defect in general as the ones that have gone through historic racism. So for you to say it's not systemic or for you to say people are just complaining, it's really turning blind eyes into something that is extremely difficult to, 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 to handle. Right. Mm. So this outward ban for, of, for people to go into law, to go into medicine, and also where they place people in Nova Scotia, for example, where they place the, the, the people that came from the United, that they brought in, that they brought in to settle here and the far places. And then they build the city. And that was a geographic discrimination. The hospitals, all the facilities were in one place. The women used to travel and come to town. And this is about 30 or something kilometers, walk and come to town, leave their families and spend in houses of white people like a whole week because they cannot afford to come work and go back. Mm. So they mm. come and enslave themselves because they have nothing else mm. and spend the whole week in the house as domestic servants and then return during the weekend and just to reach and see their family and see their children. And after a couple of um, hours, start the journey again next day to come. You tell me that does not affect someone that is not systemic. When the system itself dictated that certain people live in certain places and they have access to certain amenities and certain access and certain privileges, while others live in the outskirts. And if you have a 911 call downtown Halifax or in the Prestons, guess who gets to the hospital first? Mm -hmm. Guess who's uh, who's who is likely to die to die if 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 it is death and who's likely to be to be saved, right? So mm -hmm. it is systemic, it is deliberate, mm -hmm. and it is killing people because mm -hmm. lifespan of the African Nova Scotians and I believe African Canadians generally is less is about two years less than the white people. It is that bad. There is even racism in research. There is even racism risk because the 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 el the ailments and the sicknesses that the scientists and the and the researchers choose, it's in itself biased because they are choosing the one the things that um that, that are more likely to affect white people and research on it and find the 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 uh, 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 the, uh, the remedy for it. So it is not the process of the research, but it is the it is what 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 um, motivates the research and what where the choices come from. So when I was working with, with health, for example, I'll give this and I'll give the mic. Um, they, they, they did a, a, a employee pulse survey. So they will see how people are happy, whether people like their job, how people are feeling and so on and so forth. And um, uh, when, when they bring the result, everybody is happy that, oh, the organization is working well. Well, when I, as the consultant for, 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 for people of marginalized status, ask people, I don't find that. 
So I suggested mm. that why don't you put identifiers in the questionnaire so we see who's saying what. Mm. When, when it was done, we found that people who identify as black, people who identify as new immigrants, people who identify as, 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 as uh, uh, natives, they answer, they, they are, their level of being happy at work, feeling included at work, having promotion at work, you know, feeling grounded at work was less, mm. right? And why? Because they don't get promotion. They don't get treated the same way by the directors. And some of these biases are really un unconscious. But the mm. thing is, whether it's conscious or unconscious, it is still racism because according to the definition of discrimination, intent holds no value, right? Mm. Intent holds no value. So because we have to really deliberately and consciously see what is happening within our society and try and try to change it. So it's very, very interesting. Yeah. You know, you know, Sheikh, I think you make a very uh, important point and it's a good analogy when you talked about the race. Oftentimes when people deny systemic racism, they're looking at the photo finish at the end of the race. Mm. They don't look at the whole race yeah. like you started with all these uh, access to education, you had you know wealth, generational wealth that was built on the backs of uh, indigenous populations and exploiting, uh, frankly speaking, many, many different uh, types of communities, right? And then you have people, for example, uh, who for generations, like think about it, if you were taken away from your family, you were traumatized in these residential schools, you were taken away in the 60s, uh, you were, the, the residential schools only stopped in the 90s. So you're you're uh, you're taken away from your family. There was sexual abuse that was also rampant in these schools. Many people died. If you look at the death rate of people who died in residential schools as opposed to the you know kids in in, in regular school, it's far far greater uh, in in, uh, in in their rates. So you have like this history that you've carried. Like you know if if. It, 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 you know, you have addiction, which, of course, we know the the fact that once you have addiction in a household, it's more likely to be generational that, that gets passed down. And if we're talking about getting, um, you know, as the sheikh mentioned, that uh, they got addicted to alcohol, the Europeans got them addicted to all, you know, these forms of alcohol. That that's generational. That's a generational effect uh, on, on their society. So I think that's what happens. You look at this photo finish at the end, but you don't look at the whole race. Maybe this person started the race like half an hour after you started running. You know, maybe this person had to have chains on their leg while they were running. You know, while this guy was running, he was somebody was whipping him while he was running. So they just look at the photo finish. Okay, look at this. No, look at this. Is he? He? He's deserving of the win. Look at the whole race. Look at the whole system. And I think that's what's important when we try to evaluate uh, systemic racism. So now, what I see in uh, the media, in the mass media, uh, in, in, in and also what we see in in terms of a lot of the actions of corporations, a lot of their uh, what you could say uh, their PR moves, is that you see. Uh, an attempt to try to show that we are trying to overcome racism and intolerance and so forth. So they're going to put a black person on the board, okay, in, in the boardroom. They're going to put somebody as a spokesperson, you know, uh, maybe an indigenous person as a, as a spokesperson. So there's a lot of uh, oftentimes symbolism and pandering that can happen with 
the institutional holders of, uh, of power, okay? Does this really change the paradigm? Is this really changing the system? Because uh, Donovan Bailey in that same interview, he mentioned that they'll put a black person in a boardroom, but they've already made the decision. That he's not part of the decision-making process. They put, hey, look, we have a, this black person here in the boardroom. They're going to be part of this uh, process of, of making decisions. But it's just more symbolic. They don't really hold any power. So how can we, because the system, I think, is designed to uphold the status quo. So how do we, first of all, do you think some of these attempts, like, for example, uh, I've seen, uh, you know, to include certain groups and minorities in certain professional colleges, they need to have, um, like, a lower average to get in. And there, it is problematic because there's a lot of issues that occur afterwards with that. But do you think things like this uh, are, are the solution to make a difference in overcoming systemic racism? Or do you think that there is more fundamental questions and policy changes that we need to make to, to overcome this? So it's not just symbolism and pandering and like, you know, just putting like a, a different colored face on the poster to show, hey, we're diverse. But in actuality, much of the status quo has remained the same. So Dr. Quick, I, I would like to get your insight on this first and then I want to go to Sheikh Yafa. Yeah, um, I'd like to look at this from an Islamic point of view, in the sense that we have the concept of tawbah, which is repentance. Mm -hmm. When a person, you know, has done something wrong, it, the tawbah is a process. There's one thing for a person to say, oh, oh, oh Allah, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, and then go back to doing the same sin. That's similar to putting a black person in the office, you know, or a native person, you know, in a certain position. But the real tawbah is number, number one, to recognize that the sin is wrong and then to truly repent to Allah and then to make the intention not to return to the sin. Mm. And then the ulama say, that's compensation. You have to compensate the people who suffered under that sin. And, mm. and, and then you have to set up systems. You have to do self-analysis in, in order to prevent that sin from happening again. So this is a whole process. So if you apply that Islamic concept to what is happening you know, with this systemic racism, number one, the Europeans have to you know, recognize the fact openly and institutionally that they have been wrong, that they have wronged people. And it's not just to say, oh, I'm sorry. No, it's not just that. Mm. To recognize that they were involved in, in slave trade, they were involved in abuse, and that's here in Canada, in, in structural racism, they have been involved in it, you know, and then make a strong intention, you know, not to return to it, and then put the funds, you know, the, 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 the compensation, which means this is reparation. And reparation is not just giving people money, but it is, it is financing the systems to empower the people who have been enslaved and disempowered. Mm. So, um, in other words, you know, in America, um, when I was young, um, I was a pretty good student and I received scholarships to go to university. And, and, and I, I, I was told that what they were doing is they would look at a black student and a white student. And the test that they were giving uh, had certain vocabularies, you know, in the test. Mm -hmm. And the white students, because of where they lived in society, they use some of these words in their in their regular language they had mm. no technology around them 
whereas the black students didn't even come in contact with these words. So therefore, mm. when it come when the, when the test would happen, the black students would get a lower uh, score on the test because the vocabulary they use is different. Their access to technology is different. That had nothing to do with their intelligence or or, or their ability to to do well in school. And, and so the intelligent educators set up a system where they could analyze a black student who got a lower uh, result on the comprehensive examinations, but they look at that person's work in school, they look at their life, they look at their character, and they realize that person is just as good as the white student who scored high on the test. So what that means is there has to be a real serious uh, intention and financing in order to change the system. And the point I'm saying is this goes really deep. And in the 90s, I was working, uh, there was a liberal government, and we had an anti-racist education program with the Toronto Board of Education. Mm. And I was taken on as a consultant for the Toronto Board. Mm. We started to analyze uh, stereotypes and distortions in history and in the educational system. And we recognized these stereotypes and this psychological racism goes so deep Mm. goes back a couple hundred years in order mm. to justify the slavery of black people and keeping them in slavery. Our vocabularies changed. So there has mm. to be a complete uh, overhaul of, of our vocabularies, our educational system, our history curriculums. I'll just give you one example, not to take too much time. The concept of black and white. Mm. This study was done. And because of the study in the 60s, it starts to change. But in the dictionaries before, and some up until now, if you say uh, black, black means not only a member of the Negroid race, that's what they used to say, right? Mm. But they say black means dirty, evil, mm. gloomy. So if I was to say today was a black Thursday, it means it's a terrible day, right? Mm. So now you placed in the word black, right? So similarly, the word white, the dictionaries before, meant a member of the Caucasoid race. They've taken that out now. But it also, white means innocent, pure, and holy. So in other words, when people say uh, black magic and white magic, mm -hmm. white magic is good. Black magic is the evil one, right? Mm. Or white collar, white collar crime, right? Is that, That's like the acceptable white crime. crime. People, you know, people, uh, I was in Barbados this year in uh, December and they were talking about their dreaming of a white Christmas. How can mm. you have a white Christmas in the, in, in, in the tropical zone? Because yeah. what they meant is holy Christmas, mm. innocent Christmas, you see it? Pure. Mm. So therefore, when you say a white person in our literature and in our understanding, that person is innocent until proven guilty by the very definition white. When you say a black person, that person's guilty until proven innocent. Mm. So we have to have a complete overhaul of our educational system, our vocabularies, you know, our, our, you know, in order to really be able to overcome this and not put a bad name. Sheikh Yafa, how do we get over symbolism and pandering and actually get real systemic change. So, so um, 
so the, I, I think there is this this concept of equality and, and equity, and uh, equality is a is a is, is a very um, it's a it's a favored concept in in, in North America, uh, and, and which means everything everybody is is treated the same uh, sameness, and uh, that will just make the people uh, who started the race later uh, just stay behind forever. Um, and it will keep them uh, in the second degree and they will never catch up. So what we need to aim for is equity. Equity mm -hmm. means um, uh, reprimand. It means also putting resources where we had neglected before so that the places that were dry will also become fertile and those places will grow. So the analogy that I have for this is you, you forget the process. You do whatever it takes and you think about the destination. Mm. This is why we have elevators with extra expenses to create them and put them in buildings when we still have stairs. Because we can't tell somebody in the wheelchair if you can't go through the stairs, you know, tough luck. We will spend money and put it in the elevator so everybody gets to the floor, the same floor, you know, where, where, where by 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 doing different processes so you have to discriminate in order to bring people to that equal level of of outcome so we look at the outcome so that is one thing we need to do for example if you want to uh to hire people equitably you you, you have to stop um uh expecting people who have applied for job in your organization for years and centuries, generations, and they have not been accepted. You expect them to still continue applying. You have to spend extra to go to their communities and actually advertise the job there and show them that you are serious about it. Because people have stopped applying for these jobs because they know they have they, they were not accepted. And when you are doing interviews, for example, let there be representation of the person who is coming to the interview around this table. Because if you have been to any interview for any job that is a serious job in this country, you'll find almost all the time white people are the ones who are in the panel, right? Mm. And, and, and if you have an accent or you have a language problem or you have a lingo that's used in certain, in certain communities within a certain, a certain in culture, like, the, like, like Dr. Quick said, that you are not used to and you can't relate to that, you'll be looked at as stupid when actually that, will ha that may have no bearing on the actual execution of the job, right? And once people come in, we have to get around this union that says the people who started the race early and arrived, now they are protected with the union. Nobody can actually have, you know, you can't have an opportunity to get above them. They always have the first shot. Mm -hmm. We should look at proportion. So we say, you know, maybe we have uh, 50 jobs this year for, for managerial positions. Union, no union. Um, 20 of them is for people of diverse backgrounds. We're not compromising the standards. We're just mm -hmm. telling these people that we are serious. And trust me, you'll find that they're intelligent enough, they have the qualification, and they will come and they will do the job. And I'm saying this out of experience, because when we did this with, with one organization here, and people applied and we did changes, and for the first year, 210 people were, were, were hired from, um, from, from diverse communities. This never happened in the history of the, of the health system. Not one single complaint from any of the managers or the directors who hired them to say this person wasn't qualified. 
right? Mm. But we made sure that if the person met the minimum minimum qualification, that they are given the opportunity to go for an interview. And if the interviewer, the manager, refused to interview them, they should fill out a form. And if they interview them and they don't take first position, they take second, and the first the person who gets first is a white person, give give them the job because five 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 points for somebody who's working hard, who maybe have a dif different accent, grew up feeling intimidated, that five points is nothing. Maybe they were intimidated at the interview, give them the job, right? And when we did that, we found that people were just flying up and nobody, no complaints, not one single complaint came that these people cannot do the job. So when they say employment equity, for example, people are thinking we're trying to compromise and saying give people what they don't deserve. No, we try actually to give people some equity. We're trying to bring people in who can do the job, but we try not to not to give the ones who have the privilege to be always getting the uh, the opportunity. Uh, I, I, I mean, above those who who are not as 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 privileged. So I, I'll set this example for you, sure. Um, a study was done in Ontario where they took hundred resumes and uh, they took away um, uh, the names. They 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 duplicated them and. Um, they duplicated the resumes, but one set of the of the resumes had names like yours and and uh, like Muhammad or 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 you know uh, Ibrahim. So, so names that that are not usually English, say not John Smith, you know, typical. And then the other set, hundred, um, you know, like John Smith, which which will mainly mean somebody from from uh, English ancestry, and they sent them out. So 70% as opposed to 30% of the time, John Smith got the call for the interview when the resume is the same, which means that the problem is not that Mohammed Ibrahim and Abdullah don't have qualification. The problem is the unconscious bias that if his name is Abdullah, I think I don't think he can do the job. Right. Mm. So, and this was a this was a survey done, and it 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 it, it proved that it proved that for us. So we have to really do uh, bring this equity into the picture, and this tokenism of having one person being be in the front, and that person becomes they stretch that person so much. They're looking for that person for every picture that they want to take, and everywhere there is a speech, they put that person in front. That person works so hard. This is what we, what we do, man. We work so hard. We don't get we don't get equal pay, and you stay in your position. Usually, you don't rise up because everybody else was there ahead of you, and they belong to the union, and you can't fly above them. So we have to we have to work uh, from that perspective. And I like um, uh, the doctor's um, uh, analogy of the tauba, which is the repentance, because if you look at the time of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Um, he looked at what qualities you have. So Bilal Burrabah was the one who stood at the highest pedestal, the highest place on top of the Kaaba and made the Adhan. Usama bin Zaid, the son of a black woman, a 17-year-old general, were big companions of the Prophet, like Abu Bakr and Omar were told to come and report to him, right? Because mm. he didn't care mm. what your mother looked like. He didn't care what race, who was. He cared about you as a human being. And when you have the qualification, he knew it. And that's a leader. What is happening today? We don't have leaders. We don't have leaders. We have privileged people who are, who are, who are biased consciously 
and unconsciously. When they are told about it, they deny it, right? And they don't want to take the step and to make the change, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's that's a big problem that we really um, need to need to deal with. Um, I, I'll mention one thing that that really fascinated me in in a place that I work, where they actually looked at um, communities of people that don't usually get education in health, that if you are in there already and you are in a stream they, and you have some issues like you need babysitting, they will provide you with a scholarship to take care of that so that you can continue education. That is kind, that, it is that kind of, of investment that we need. Then you will see the people come up. I know one person that went through that program who had only finished high school. Now that person is a manager in, that, in, in the organization that they are looking for. And I mentored that person at some mm -hmm. point. Right? So um, people are not stupid. Black people are not stupid. Uh, uh, native people are not stupid. Um, and, uh, immigrants are not stupid. It's just we don't have the same level of opportunity. Mm. Yeah. I, I think uh, one um, uh, one thing that I liked is to bring in uh, the, the Islamic perspective. And I um, am reminded of a policy decision made by Omar bin al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. There was uh, some uh, pasture land that was uh, available for animals to go and graze and eat from. And actually, Umar bin al-Khattab did not allow uh, Abdurrahman bin Auf's animals to go in there. He uh, let the average person who wasn't as rich. So one thing that I feel is that when you try to equalize or influence the outcome, you know, it's okay, it's going to be even if you know, things are represented demographically and so forth, or we need to increase the number of this demographic. I think you just switch one problem for another. I'll, I'll give you an example. Like there are certain um, clinicians that developed a reputation for not being the best clinicians. And they were based, you know, the idea was that they were given uh, an easier path uh, to get into this profession. And because of that, you have now maybe those, uh, uh, this particular demographic who are clinicians who aren't necessarily the best. So they now it's gets replaced with another type of stereotype for them. Okay. These aren't the best types of clinicians. And so maybe you're equalizing it on one end, but now they're developing, uh, another type of reputation on the other end. But I like the idea of uh, making sure that everybody uh, has a decent starting point. So everyone has that same opportunity, those resources, uh, the peace of mind to be able to, uh, uh, you know, uh, to grow, to be able to achieve uh, certain goals and, and so forth. So uh, one thing that uh, is going to be very, very difficult and will be an uphill battle is that when you're trying to change the system, there is so much history and so much baggage there. You know, like there's an incredible amount of baggage and people are just so resistant because it sometimes just goes into like this visceral part of your body uh, where certain, uh, for example, white people will think, hey, they're coming for everything. They're coming for everything of ours. Like this is the type of fear that some of them feel. Like if you talk to some of them, they think, oh, they're coming for all our jobs. They're coming for all our positions. They want everything, right? That's where you get this whole Sharia law thing. Oh, they're coming to put in Sharia law. Man, we just want to pray in peace, like in our masajid and do some basic things and just live a peaceful life. But then it's like, oh, no, they're going to come over and displace everything and have Sharia law. So in our attempt to be part of the system, 
how can we create a sense of harmony, especially for us Muslims who can set an example, who can perhaps lead the way? Because what I think sets us apart very uniquely is we have a deen that actually legislated. It is only it's the only deen that has ever existed that legislated nations. You know, it, you were able to have society function based on the core values of that deen and every single facet of society, whether it's economics, you know, socio, you know, the sociopolitical landscape, all of these different things, military authority. So how can we set an example to show that this can be done uh, harmoniously? Uh, Dr. Quick, I'd like to hear from you. I think it's important for us to recognize that, you know, after Tawheed, the oneness of God, you know, and our relationship, you know, to the last Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu One of the most important aspects within Islamic lifestyle is justice, and 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 especially in leadership. And if and if we are to set an example, uh, and to become leaders, as the Quran says, Shuhada ala nas. If we are to be witnesses on the people, we have to be just, and that means sometimes. We have to actually tell the truth, even if it's against ourselves. And this does not mean that we do not stand for the truth. We have to stand for the truth. And this is not going to be enjoyable for the Europeans because they have colonized the world. They have killed millions of people. They have done some terrible crimes. But at the same time, crimes have been done by other nations as well in the past. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is most merciful. And we have to be able to show that uh, type of justice, which means we start with ourselves, because Islam is the perfected last revelation. But Muslims are not necessarily perfected. We have a lot of problems. And I was just talking with uh, the Council of Imams last night, you know, and because um, the Imams are all saying, like, tell us about race, tell us about racism. What's going on in America? Who's George Floyd, man? Like what yeah. So I'm trying to unpack this for the Imams, but I said, look, mm. I'm going to tell you the truth. We don't have institutionalized racism as white supremacy because we don't have an ideology. You know, our, our Islam, you know, you know, defeats the, the white supremacy. However, we have racist behavior. Mm. It's part of racism. And we, we're going to have to come to grips with that within our societies. And I'm being straightforward. We have concepts of light and dark. Mm. Who is a pretty girl? Who is an ugly girl? What is nice here? What is bad here? Who is intelligent? Who's not intelligent? I mean, we as African-American Muslims coming into masjids, sometimes usually uh, when we want a position, they say, okay, brother, call the adhan or do security. Mm. Like these are the two, don't, don't, don't be an imam. Don't ask mm. to be president of the executive committee. Mm. Right. Call the Adhan. In South Africa, they say Bilal Bang. This is what mm. they call it. Bilal Bang. Mm. So this is a type of, a minor form of institutionalized racism. Or mm. tried, or we could say prejudice. It's yeah. not on the same level, but if we can solve that, or if we can change within ourselves, so that our community, when people look at us, they will actually see a community where that prejudice and bias you know, has been dealt with, or at least, you know, people are coming to grips with it, then this will attract people and people will trust us. They will trust us because we're just, 
and we're sincere and we're honest. I want to give you an example of how this can affect society. I lived in South Africa for 10 years. And in Cape Town, in the Western Cape, the, the Cape Malays, um, who came mainly from Indonesia and East Africa, and they were Shafi, and, you know, and they used to wear a red fez. And the Afrikaners, the Dutch Afrikaner government, who were very much into their Christianity with their, with their institutionalized racism. You know, if there was a court case and a man came in the court to testify and he had a red fez on, that judge would almost 100% accept his testimony mm. because they knew that Muslims were, did not lie. Mm. They knew that Muslims stood for justice, even though they didn't trust us in some other ways. But when it comes to certain things, they knew that quality about us. Mm. So similarly, you know, we have to display these qualities because mm. that's what Islamophobia tries to break down with the mm. stereotypes that they give about, you know, about Muslims and, and Islam. They <coughs> want to break down, but we have to actually be living examples of this when we go out amongst the people. And we got to fight the bias and mm. the prejudice that's within ourselves. This is not an easy job. But we got to be honest, and we have to come to grips with it. You know, I, I really uh, appreciate uh, what you said uh, because it's different sometimes than the activist woke type of mentality, where it's just to blame. You know what I mean? It's like it's the other. It's like you know they're the they're the bane of all our problems, the bane of our existence. But what you said, uh, I feel it's like some very sage wisdom that people need to pay attention to, that. The first, the one that you have the most control in terms of actions, the one action that you can change immediately is your own. You know, so you have, you do deal with people who have racist attitude. Uh, you have uh, systemic racism. You may not be able to change that overnight, and it may take time, and it's a battle of attrition. But you have control over your own character. You have control over what you say, what you do, how you feel, how you think about things. And that can have a dramatic impact. You know, I've seen people who were just just ignorant, just boneheaded, but then they interacted with somebody that just completely destroyed their entire ra racist paradigm just by that one-on-one -on -one, uh, type of interaction. So for us to take responsibility and show, I think, that moral consistency within our own community, hey, if we're telling the world that we need to end racism and we need to bring justice, we need to start that with our own communities uh, at home. I really like um, those advices. Uh, Sheikh Yafa, uh, similarly with you, uh, how can the Islamic perspective, how can the Islamic guidance uh, give us harmony through this uh, period of us trying to get justice in this, in this, uh, in, you know, systemically? When you have people who will be resistant and you could have, uh, for example, you could uh, at this point, you know, and many people are talking about this. It's like, what is the hot button activist issue for the day? <clears throat> and so right now, because of what's happening in the United States, it's focusing on, uh, you know, this is uh, BLM, Black Lives Matter, all the oppression that's occurred to black people. But, you know, tomorrow it might switch to something else, right? It just goes, it's like this, uh, you know, uh, injustice or these oppression Olympics. You know, like who's being oppressed next? And that's the one that we're going to give. But but why? And then you'll come back to it. We'll come back to black. Oh, yeah. Remember, they're still being oppressed and we'll come back to it. So 
what is the difference? How can Islam really show our teachings? How can it show a better way, a more harmonious way, uh, a way that will last? So something that's not just going to be a short-term solution. SubhanAllah, um, um, that's, a, that's a very important question. And I'm happy uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Quick said those words because uh, that's the beginning. A lot needs to be done. Um, one thing we can do is to practice our deen properly and um, bring proper tarbiyah in our in our homes, uh, uh, a proper etiquette of Islam in our homes. Um, I've lived in Southeast Asia a little bit, and in Europe, and in the Arab world, and, uh, and, and, and West Africa, of course, where I come from, and here. And mostly I've lived with Muslims, and like um, we all know, it exists, in, it exists in homes, it exists in the lingo of the people, um, I think after the first and and second generation after the Rasulullah sallallahu um, racism got introduced, uh, uh, reintroduced in the Muslim community. You find it even in some of the tafsir uh, books when they talk about a black person, how they will go into certain details that are unnecessary. Um, even when they talk about somebody as as as, as Luqman Hakim, um, you know, they want to talk about the size of his lips, the size of his feet. I don't know who, who else in the whole Quran who, who you will want to describe, right? Why do you need that? Mm. Why is that? And and then mm. this introduction of Alf Layla wa Layla, the, the Arabian Nights, which actually, uh, it, it really grounded racism in the Muslim community. Uh, again, if you read it, anytime they talk about black person, there are certain descriptions to give that. So somebody wrote this and because it's beautiful, it's a chain. So, so, so when I was doing languages, the chain where the kind of the way they told the story is just beautiful. Where you get the Aladdin story and so on and so forth. So it got introduced and literature also inculcated it. So um, we have to really dismantle that language. If you live in some of our Muslim worlds and you see how they're describing, you read the literature, uh, even in class, um, uh, people forget. Even as a black person, you're talking to someone, they forget that you're black because it's just a concept now in their head right mm. but because they're interacting with you there is no problem the trust the trust develops but the children that they are telling it those children just when they see somebody somebody that they don't interact with what comes to their mind is the images right mm. so they grow with that kind of feeling so we have to really take it out of our lingo we have to we have to dismantle it and change it but another thing is also the fear which you mentioned dr uh, uh um, dr um uh, sayed is um we are afraid of each other because we have we we are greedy and once we have greed for very long time uh you know you have somebody's rights in your hand in your house in your bank account you didn't give you zakat because anything you earn you earn it on the back of the rich and poor of your community somehow they bought from you, you bought from them, they sold to you, sold to them. They are the people you meet with. But when you collect everything and build a fence around yourself, you're building it because you know you've collected too much. And in Islam, we have collecting too much. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that when you collect, there is the right of the poor there, which is called zakah, which you have to give. And when you give, if everybody gives their zakah, people will not be downtrodden. And when people are not downtrodden, they are not angry. And when you know the other person is not angry at you, you don't have fear. And fear is it separates us. And fear comes out of greed. And greed can be fought with generosity. And one form of generosity that is being part of our religion is the is the zakah.
So I think if Muslims can pay their zakah and really put it where it's supposed to be, we can solve part of that that problem and the interaction you mentioned as well. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I, I was I was reflecting on this today, and I thought racism will not end until we end it. Mm. Right? It will not end by our value system. It will only end by us practicing the values. Mm. We can talk about our religious teachings, stories of our great saints, and our democratic ideals all night long. But if we don't do our part to make our own changes, our nights will only get longer. Mm. True. No, and you know, I want people to understand the the actual that the effect of racism has a face and there are real stories and there's real pain behind it. On the same token, there is the, uh, what I would, you know, generally speaking, you may call it the human spirit, but I, for us as Muslims, I would say the power of Iman, of how Iman can overcome such ignorance. So uh, I, I would just uh, like to, each of you to share an experience maybe of uh a racial experience that there's so there's a real story, a real face of what you endured, and either the same story or something of how Iman was able to help you overcome that ignorance and maybe you know show an example of what we can do. So like a real life type of example of overcoming this type of uh, you know racial discrimination. So you know, Doctor Quick, maybe I'll start with you. Uh, you know, what is something that you a real life story you endured? And then either the same thing or something different about how we can overcome or Iman has the strength to overcome these things to to make a better path for people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, um, I can say uh, in terms of when we speak about Iman, uh, in terms of faith, uh, our faith in Islam, but I can I can also speak about um, internal courage. Uh, in a sense, and it's expressed um, with our taqwa and our iman. But when you know, when I was younger, you know, I was uh, I got a scholarship to go to a, a university in the United States, in Bucknell University, uh, which is in Pennsylvania, in southern Pennsylvania. And that year, out of you know twenty, thirty thousand students, there were five black students that were taken into the university. Okay, this is 1967. And you know, we came in. And uh, a lot of the students are Southerners, but you know, through um, you know, uh, you know, in, our, our courage, you know, through persistence, you know, through struggle, we we found out later, you know, that um, the 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 uh, university officials were watching, watching us, and they were afraid, but we turned out to be heroes of the campus, right? Because of you know, and and at that time it was, you know, you know. Uh, something that that our parents put inside of us to struggle, you know, it was confidence within ourselves, and 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 for a Muslim, and Muslims are finding themselves in these situations, our belief in Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, you know, and our, our our confidence. We need to understand our history, we need to understand our roots, you know. This 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 can enable the younger generation to overcome, you know, these odds, you know, really that are in front of us because, you know, for many people it's a daunting task. Uh, mm. You know that's in front of us, but you know Allah Azza wa Jal can say be and it is. You know things can change. You know if we have the consistency, 
and we are close, you know, in, in our practice, you know, of our, of our Islam. Sheikh, I have the same question for you. <laughs> Truly, this is the hardest question because mm. I don't know which story to tell you, and I don't want to tell yeah. a story that will sound very, very hard. And I don't want no, to. No, I, I, no, I think I, I think I think I think people yeah. they appreciate I, a real life face. Yeah. Like I so went I'm, through this I'm, thing, and I'm gonna it's I'm real gonna and there's pain. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm gonna tell you a light one that really bothered me. Yeah. Uh, um, um, and I'm not going to tell a heavy one, but a light one that brother, it happened in the masjid. And my, 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 my son went and took the microphone and was, you know, the kids like, like that. They see the microphone in the, in the masjid, they want to talk to, and, and when they, the, hearing their voice echo in the masjid is just pleasing to them. And when this happened, uh, I rushed to, to get him. Uh, and, um, I said, he wants to be, uh, Mahmoud Khalil Husari, because that's my that's my favorite uh, Qari, right? One mm -hmm. one one brother one brother said, no, he wants to be Michael Jackson. I said, no, he wants to be my Mahmoud Khalil. He said, no, he's a black guy. He wants to be Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. So um, that really bothered me mm -hmm. um, that because he's black, he can only be Michael Jackson, even in the masjid. Mm -hmm. um, that bothered me a lot, and I have not forgotten it. And it was somebody I, I respected. He thought it was a joke. Uh, mm. But I argued back. I said, "No, you want to be Mahmoud." No, he said, "No, no." <laughs> mm. So yeah, um, there was, and this is a light story. Trust me, this mm. is the light one. And um, uh, I'll give you one that happened to me in the bank not very long ago. I, I, have, I have earned the bank's respect since then, and they have earned my respect. It happened a couple of months ago. I came from work and I lined up. I wanted to do something. There was a a, a, a white woman in front of me and a black man uh, ahead, ahead of her, and a white man behind me. So four of us. And sometimes when you line up and the line is long, um, uh, the, 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 the folks in the bank who, who, don't, uh, who are not sitting behind the counter can come and say, if you have anything that is, that is not um, um, cash transaction, come here, I could help you. So um, skip the, the black guy, came to the white woman, talked to her, and they skipped me and went to the white man who was not even lining up, was looking at the television. So I said, but what about us? <laughs> so, and I made it at the pitch that uh, they will, they will, uh, folks will hear. I said, I said, what happened? I said, the black guy ahead didn't get attention. Like I didn't get attention, but the one ahead of me and the one behind me got attention. And then I did my transaction with a smile, really. With a mm -hmm. smile, because I knew that was not the place to... To cause uh, mm. to cause anything or, or to make any 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 problems, uh, but I said it so that the ones that are working there would hear me, and I walked out. And mm. not long after that, I, the manager came after me when I was entering to my car. And luckily for me, I left my ch my son inside because what bothers me is when these things happen in front of children. And mm. and 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 but I think I'm fooling myself because they are growing up here; they're going to face it, and I know they already have their stories. So they came and called me. And I went to the manager's office and uh, he said, I heard that such and such happened. I said, yeah, I said, it's not a big deal. Um, you know, because they know me there, they know my name and so on. And I didn't want to put up anything. And we have had respect among ourselves for a long time. And uh, he really apologized to me. So I said, no, you deal, deal with it. And, and this is my area, actually. If you want help, I could I could provide some help. So I went into the car and by the time I arrived home, my phone rang, a number that I didn't know. So the lady herself called and apologized. Now, when I show up in the, in the, in the bank, I'm a celebrity. 
Mm. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know what? You know what I find beautiful is that you both of you do not let, uh, and I and I see this with other people as well. You don't let some of these ill effects of racism define you. You don't define yourself as a survivor, as a w victim. But what I see is community leaders in front of me. You understand what I'm saying? Because sometimes what happens is that the scar that's left behind by enduring some of these abuses or oppression or unfairness, you have like this chip on your shoulder, which you look at the world in such a negative light. But what I find so beautiful, and I, I hope people really pay attention to this and make a note of this and become self-reflective upon this. You're not complaining and, complaining and blaming the world. You're leading you're you're looking for solutions. You're trying to set an example. You're talking about self accountability. You're talking about true leadership, and that's what I believe. Uh, you know, heroes and leaders do. They overcome the challenges and the different obstacles they face in life. And the greater the obstacle, the greater the hero. Like the Sahaba radiAllahu anhum, they didn't sit around after the death of our Rasulullah and said, "Oh, we endured this and we endured that." And remember early days of Mecca and just talk about what they endured and all the unfairness. Rather, they showed the world there's a better way. They went to all the different, you know, wherever they could to spread the dawah and show, we're going to help lift you from oppression. We got lifted from oppression. We endured oppression. And we're going to help lift you out of uh, oppression. That's the way of, of the sunnah of Rasul That's the way to show a better way. That's that's a healthy way of doing it because you know what you can do when you get hurt and you're harmed and you're and you're sometimes victimized and you're dealt with unjustly. You can try to perpetrate that on others. You know you can try to be unjust and fair to others because I don't believe the right solution is now say white people are evil and we need to uh, you know, uh, call them out and uh, cancel culture and attack people and all. I, I don't think that is because it's going to be one day you're up and the next day you're down. And it's going to be a cycle of you know, revenge and tit for tat and you'll never get to a place where you're standing together. You know what I mean? You'll mm -hmm. always be standing against one another. And so I think that's uh, a beautiful example of, I see in front of me is people who have a world perspective, so not just a Canadian perspective, uh, North American, worldwide, being all over the you know different parts of the world, to show how Iman specifically, how Islam can help you rise above all of the this like this nefarious disease, this evil disease of uh, of racism, and we should I think look at that as and really be self reflective whether you're Muslim or non-Muslim. Look at it. How did Islam bring so many different nations and people together? Mm -hmm. How did you know? I was talking about Malcolm X because I just love the life of Malcolm X. How did Islam, like Orthodoxy Islam, take him from that state where he was so black nationalist and calling white people the devil to now thinking, hey, we're all brothers? It was mm -hmm. Islam that did that. How mm -hmm. can it take a racist, somebody who's part of the KKK? How can it take somebody who's part of that type of mentality and bring them to love? all different people of the earth, you know? So I think that's an important, um, you know, analysis and self-reflective question that people, uh, you know, need to make. And I'll just ask uh, both of you if you have any uh, closing uh, comments or pieces of advice. Dr. Quick, I'd like to start with you. It's important for us to, to maintain positivity. And um, when we look at the challenges in front of us, and when we look at our, our deen, 
and the practices of our deen, we need to reflect on the fact that the Prophet would, on some occasions when he sent his companions out, uh, he would tell them, Bashiru walatunafiru, yasiru walatunasiru. So he said, give glad tidings. Don't drive people away. Mm. Make it easy. Don't make it difficult. So this concept of, of Bashiru, this, this optimism, this positivity is crucial for Muslims today because Allah blessed us with the, the signs of the last days. So we have actually alamat to tell us some of the things that are actually coming together now that will be happening in the world. And so we need to keep that in mind and that the end goal is to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, and, and, and to enter into the next life in a state of Islam. And so if, if we look at it that way, it can be a win-win situation for us, even though things seem to be down. Um, ultimately, Allah Azza wa Jal is, has power over all things. And we need to keep this in mind with all these crises in the world. Um, I, I think we are all victims, white and black people are all victims of um, shaitan's kick into mm -hmm. all of this. How um, somebody got to look at another person of the same blood, the way we look at each other. And um, we're all victims of this. And if we if we deal with it with um, push and pull, right? Like Muawiyah would say, you stretch it a little bit, but then you soften it. So we mm -hmm. can't let uh, it continue because uh, Rasulullah you don't allow injustice to continue. You don't commit injustice either. But we have to know we are all victims and we are all scared and the scare has to go because for somebody to pump in a little child so many bullets mm. as if one bullet will not kill, mm. uh, where that is coming from, it's is shaitan and great fear, right? And for you to put your knee on somebody's neck and separate their, their, their head through their jugular vein from their shoulder for nine whole minutes, you must be thinking that person is just as strong as an elephant, that they won't die. So um, we are so we are so afraid of each other, and uh, but we are just. I had a friend who passed away, rahmatullah We studied together. He said, "People are easy. You just need to talk to them." Mm. You know, as simple as that was. That stayed with me, and that has been close to 25 years since I heard it. Mm. So we are all victims of this. Allah subhanahu wa taala says in the Quran, "Inna Allah bil adl wal ihsan." Allah commands justice. But he commands justice and ihsan, you know, mm. high moral character, the, mm. the, the ultimate moral character, excellent moral character. How do you combine those two things? For me, this is one of the miracles of the Quran. Because when we say justice, all we think is punish. Mm. But Allah says, well, ihsan. Mm. Right? And even if, and if that justice is to somebody who is close to you, say, Mm. And even not well yatama, right? So even when you take um, your, your your right back, you have to take it with with a level of ihsan, a level of of consciousness, and know that the other person who is doing what they're doing, um, they are they are also victims. What really touches my heart is when I see um, when I saw some uh, police um, um, chiefs taking a knee, mm. you know, 
when the crowd in the United States is saying, we have come for you because we're tired. Mm. And they have the power, they have the gun. They said, no, I think we got it. And they took a knee. That really tears my eyes. Mm. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because nothing happens without his help, that he helps us through these times, just as he has helped humanity through many, many other times. Mm. I appreciate both of your time, both of your insight. Uh, you're great friends for, uh, for this podcast, great teachers. And uh, inshallah, we would love to have you on uh, again. And, um, you know, to our viewers, again, reminder uh, to subscribe to the com uh, to the content. Uh, you know, you can uh, like, follow all those different things, uh, share it. I think these are important voices that we need to share with uh, the Muslim community, with the Canadian community to show that there is a different narrative that's more balanced. You know, they talk about balance and nuance. You're not going to get any more balance and nuance like this. People who have lived this reality of enduring racism, but they're not coming. We're coming out with uh, solutions. We're coming out with discussions. We're, we're trying to show that through, uh, through our own lived life experience and what we have been taught in Islam, it can elevate. It can elevate all of humanity. We want people to be elevated together. We don't want some people to be left behind. We want people, all of us, to have that photo finish, and, uh, photo finish at the end in Jannah, inshallah. So, Jazama uh, Khair once again for everyone. And our next podcast will be Saturday afternoon. Uh, so don't forget to tune in. And remember, we live by the haq. We die by the haq. And just when you... Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.